We are studying through the Bible in the book of Jeremiah. Why don't you turn to Jeremiah as we continue our Through the Bible study. Uh, Wednesday night, Lord willing, we'll cover into chapter five, six, maybe even to seven. We'll see how far we get if you wanna read ahead. But we're gonna draw our, uh, our scripture from Jeremiah chapter five uh, this morning. Jeremiah chapter five. Well, like I said, this week uh, has been pretty crazy. Um, I think 2020 election is gonna go down as one of the craziest. And the question is, is it even over? You know, like, um, you know, the, if you're on the Democrat side, you, you would say, well, yes, Biden's won. But the Republican side is, is arguing that there was um, all kinds of, you know, fraud that took place. And so, the, you know, there's, there's a real argument that some are saying, That's, don't, don't get so comfy yet, uh, thinking that Biden's gonna be the president. So whether it's Trump or Biden, people are still kind of wondering, and there's, there's some real problems that, uh, you know, a peaceful transition of power, that, that's something that we should be concerned about and be praying about. Uh, if, if, you know, how that goes down. And, um, and so, you know, you kind of wonder about the condition of the United States. And it's during these times, when I was a kid, I remember um, the, the idea of democracy was such a great idea. I mean, to me, I thought, I'm, I'm thankful that I'm part of a democracy. Uh, there's different forms of government. The question is, is democracy a good form of government? Is communism a good form of government? Socialism? How about a dictatorship? Okay, I'm gonna say something. They'll, they'll take this snippet and play it and people will think I'm like the Antichrist, but that's okay. Um, con communism would be wonderful. Did you know that? Communism, wonderful. There's only one problem. Sin. People are involved. Once you take any form of government, you add the sin factor. So communism, socialism would be wonderful. See, socialism says that the general population is not good enough to make decisions that are the best for the, the community. So socialism says the government will take care of it for you. The problem with socialism, sin. People are sinful and they get into government and they take control and they start you know, skimming money for themselves and not really caring about the, the people. Uh, and so that's, that's where you have like Venezuela. Uh, and you see the problem with socialism is sin. But I, I, I wanna tell you as a red-blooded American who loves, you know, I miss the days by the way of going into the polls and actually going into the little thing and voting. Those were the good old days. That, that, was, that was fun. I felt like, you felt like you were doing something that was like part of your civic duty as a, an American, you know? Um, now the whole mail-in thing, you kind of fill in the bubbles and pass them on and then they throw them out or get dead people <laughs> or whatever they do. I don't know what they do with them. But there was something about going down there that just really felt, um, felt good. And, and as, a, as, you know, as a democracy, democracy has served our nation fairly well for quite some time. But the thing is, democracy will fail because of the same reason communism will fail and the same reason socialism will fail and the same reason a dictatorship will fail, it's because of sin. Do you understand that? Um, majority rules, according to the Bible, well, that's a lose-lose. Um, because the majority may or may not be righteous or holy or moral. What happens to a nation when the, the majority starts to move away from morality, from biblical truth, from what is righteous and true, and when the majority starts moving into what, according to God's perspective, which is the only one that matters, um, is evil and unrighteous. That's where democracy will fail. By the way, um, 
maybe some of you know your history, but there was a guy named Alexis de Tocqueville who came um, to the United States from France. And he wrote a book called Democracy in America back in the 1800s. As you know, America was rising in, in power and in ingenuity and in success and wealth and you know, all, the, all the blessings of this nation in the 18, late, you know, or early to mid 1800s, de Tocqueville came and said, we gotta see what the secret is to this democracy in America. And he wrote a book called Democracy in America in 1835. But this guy, de Tocqueville was a very brilliant guy and he's still quoted by so many people today because he said things that were not only brilliant and true, but also spookily prophetic. Um, he said things about democracy and about the United States of America that are almost, you know, Orwellian in the, uh, the you know, prediction category. Let me read to you one of the quotes that de Tocqueville said as he investigated in the 1830s uh, of what democracy was and what America was. He said, I sought for the greatness of the United States in her commodious harbors, her ample rivers, her fertile fields and boundless forests, and it was not there. I sought for America's greatness in her rich minds, her vast world commerce, her public school system, and in her institutions of higher learning, and it was not there. I looked for it in the, her democratic Congress and her matchless constitution, and it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. And here's how he concludes, listen. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America ceases to be great. Boy, isn't that the truth? I think that that was prophetic and true in how he said that. It's true how, you know, our nation was founded on godly biblical principles, whether you want to admit it or not. I know there's people that try to say, oh, the founders, they were not really Christians. They were just deists or, or atheists. And, you know, they got this whole narrative. That's just hogwash. There, we have documents of letters and, and we still have a bunch of the books and journals and things. All these guys talked about the Lord Jesus as being their savior. And they were people who believed in, in God. And even, you know, they say, well, Thomas Jefferson didn't do that. They, they all had, uh, you know, well, well, they were, some of them were slave owners. Listen, uh, whenever you have people, you have sin and craziness. But the general idea of founding of this country was to say, we wanna go more in a godly direction and less in a secular direction. And as long as our nation was moving in that direction, we have become greater and greater and greater. But it seems that the more we move away from morality and righteousness, we find ourselves in greater and greater trouble. So majority rules, democracy, How's that gonna serve us long-term? Well, I believe we're starting to see um, democracy failing us as a nation. Well, is that because your candidate uh, isn't winning or isn't, I'm not even saying that. I'm just saying what I see in America is I'm starting to see more and more of a majority who support things that are contrary to what the Bible teaches. And it's not just conservative or you know, liberal or Democrat or Republican. It has more to do with, do you have more of a biblical worldview or a secular worldview? And as we see America in trouble right now, and much of the world is holding their breath. I did a prophecy update you know, on Friday night. If you missed it, you might catch up because we talked about how this election is really affecting the whole world. The whole world's kind of waiting because there's a lot of nations that are kind of waiting to see what they're gonna do. Is it Trump or is it Biden? Because based on who that is, they're gonna take a whole different direction. 
And what's that gonna do to the world? And we talked about that. But I believe I see America, the United States, with our democracy headed toward a cliff. And it's the same cliff that many other nations have gone over, including the Jews. When we read about Israel, they did the same thing we do. Remember I was talking about how the Bible is compared to a mirror. And as we look in the Bible, we sort of see ourselves reflected. And I I see that here in our text today in Jeremiah chapter five. The children of Israel were doing the same thing I think largely we are doing today as a nation. What do you mean, Brett? Well, where we're at in the Bible is where we're at in life. That's the way I've found it. As we go verse by verse through the Bible, I love that about Bible, you know, right through the Bible is, is the Lord sort of orchestrates things, I think, to track with us. And I think that's helpful. And this is the case today. Let me show you what I mean. It's Jeremiah chapter five, verse 30 is where we're gonna take a look. Jeremiah 5, 30 and 31, let's read. And there it says, a wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. And what will you do in the end thereof? (laughs) Jeremiah the prophet, he's saying, the prophets are lying, the priests are doing their own thing, the people love it, what are you gonna do? That's kind of how he ends this little thing here. And what what will you do in the end thereof? What what are you gonna do? Um, That's the question really of the day. What's going on in Israel? Well, the Lord starts out with Jeremiah. Now, if you have the 1611 King James Bible like I do, you say, what, it's a wonderful, uh, it's a wonderful and horrible thing. Well, which one is it, wonderful or horrible? Well, remember in the old English, they used words a little differently. Wonderful could be wonderfully horrible or wonderfully evil in ancient uh, you know, English language. It's like you'd say, I'm full of wonder how horrible this thing is. That's the idea. Another word like that is awful. Did you know awful could have meant good back in old English? That's awful. And you say, you mean it's bad? No, it's, it's full of awe. It makes me be full of awe. So your redneck that's saying, that's awfully good. That's, that's some awfully good potatoes, you know. Um, that's actually accurate. Uh, it makes me full of awe. Um, but that's the, that's the thing that's being said here in the King James. Your newer translations, like your new international version, says it this way. A horrible and shocking thing has happened to the land. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. And my people love it this way. But what will you do in the end? What's going on here in Israel, Jeremiah the prophet, who's kind of the lone guy speaking the truth. Nobody wants to hear what Jeremiah says. When he, when he prophesies, by the way, the nation hates him for it. They're gonna, we're gonna see that he's gonna be thrown into dungeons and gonna be chained up for saying things. But as it turns out, everything Jeremiah says is gonna be true, but the people don't wanna hear it. They want the prophets that will tell them lies. They want the priests that are doing their own thing for their own reasons or for their own motivations. And so all that to say, that's the problem. The majority said, we're not gonna listen to you, Jeremiah. Isn't it interesting that Jesus taught us that the path that leads to destruction, well, that that pathway is broad. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. But as it turns out, the narrow path, that's the path that leads to eternal life. 
And as it turns out, that's seen not only in New Testament truth, but also in Old Testament pictures. There's Jeremiah giving them the narrow path of truth, but the people say, we like the the prophets that tell us lies. We love it this way. Um, isn't it funny? I'm, I'm a little bit of a realist and, and um, it's probably, you know, I don't know if it's to my own detriment, but I remember, you know, when I was on the losingest team in America, you know, there at Hidden Valley High School, we hadn't won a basketball game for, for three years. Um, we, we made the front page of USA Today magazine um, uh, or, you know, a, a newspaper. And, um, and it was, it was, it was kind of tough. You know, you kind of get really good at losing. And I remember the coach would say, come on, we're gonna go out there and win, say it, we're gonna win. I'm like, we're not gonna win, it's not gonna happen. I'm a realist. Um, you know, we can sit there and pump ourselves up all day till we're blue in the face, but you know, well, Brett, that's why you guys didn't win. You had a negative attitude. You need to look in the mirror and say, you're good enough, you're smart enough, you're strong enough, you can do it. And then you'll just magically win. That's what, that's what the world likes. Oh, that's so great. Positive mental attitude, self-esteem, even though you're kind of a loser, <laughs> but you can just positive think your way into things. I'm, I'm not really that person, but see, that's the problem. The people of Jeremiah say, oh, we love it when the prophets lie to us because we don't want to hear the truth. That's too scary. That's too dangerous. We want to hear the lies of the prophets and we want priests that aren't going to really, you know, inter seed on behalf of God and the people and all that stuff. We, we wanna kinda do it our own way, stuff that we can control. You see, there's four people groups here that are part of this little narrative of these two verses. First, you have the prophets, then you have the priests, then you have the people, and then lastly, it's you and me. What are you gonna do? What am I, what am I gonna do? And we have to ask those questions. So first, if you're jotting down your notes, number one, the prophets. Now, the prophets of the Old Testament are different than the people who move in the ministry of prophecy in the New Testament. And every time I say this, we get emails and people wonder, this is not new or uh, uh, different. I mean, you know, most Bible scholars agree, the prophets of the Old Testament don't function in the New Testament in the way, the same way. In the New Testament, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you can give a word of prophecy, 1 Corinthians 14. And that's any of you that are Christians that are filled with the Holy Spirit. One of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit is not just tongues. Paul says that's the least of the gifts. But in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, he says a person who gives a word of prophecy gives a word of edification, exhortation, or comfort from God to people. And I bet many of you have moved in that role of prophecy um, have you ever been talking to someone and you didn't really know what to say and you knew it was an important discussion and then you just kind of sensed the Lord giving you the words to say to this person and as you spoke them, it, it ministered and it connected and you're like, wow, that, that was kind of above my own skill set. I feel like the Lord spoke through me in that situation. Well, that's how the Lord rolls today in the church. Uh, by his spirit, he, he gives you a word of prophecy and any spirit-filled Christian can do that. I'm, I'm leery of people that walk around today saying, I'm a prophet of the Lord, as they walk around sort of acting like some weird prophet. That's, you don't wanna be a prophet of the Old Testament and I'll tell you why. They were hated, they were despised. Can you imagine Isaiah? Isaiah's there, we, we read about him when we just finished Isaiah. Remember when God says, okay, Isaiah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to strip down naked. Uh, okay, and then what? I want you to walk around Israel for a whole year naked. 
and I want you to tell everybody, you are naked before the Lord, he sees all things. And, and like, that's a tough day at the office right there. You know what I'm saying? Like when you're a prophet of the Old Testament, and we could talk about Jeremiah being thrown in dungeons. We could talk about, we talked about last week, Hosea. There's Hosea and the Lord says, here's what I want you to do, Hosea. Okay, Lord, I'm ready, whatever you want. See the prostitute on the street corner there? That's your wife, marry her. Nope. And Hosea did and had to live with his wife who was unfaithful to him for years and years. Like the prophets of the Old Testament, Jesus said, look it up, Jesus said that John the Baptist was the last of the prophets as we knew them in the Old Testament. Um, and then the New Testament version is people who speak words of prophecy. It's a nuance, but the reason I go into that is because I think one of the things that we, we miss is kind of the importance of what a prophet of the Old Testament really was. He would be the guy, or she in some cases, like Deborah was called a prophetess, they would speak the word of the Lord on behalf of God to the people. God would entrust his you know, direction, word to a person, and then that person would come and declare it before the people of Israel. Now the office of a prophet was gravely important to make sure you got it right. Does anybody recall, according to Jewish law, what do you do to the prophet that makes up stuff and is wrong, anybody? You stone them to death. So like, again, tough gig. I'm glad there's not prophets today. If you're a prophet today, you better be careful. Because uh, if there were prophets like the Old Testament today and you get it wrong, uh, you're supposed to be stoned to death, according to Jewish law. So that, that's a tough gig also. But there started to come a time where the prophets of Israel, well, the people could care less if they were speaking truth or not. And they actually seemed to prefer prophets that would tell them what they wanted to hear rather than what they needed to hear from God. And that was the condition during the time of Jeremiah. The prophets prophesy falsely. Now, this wasn't the first time this happened in Israel. Now, by the way, what is the equivalent then? If you say, Brett, the, the, the prophets of the Old Testament, there's no such thing in the New Testament, not the same thing at least. So what is the equivalent of prophet, the prophets of the Old Testament? The answer is easy, the word of God. We don't need, you know, um, Jeremiah to walk around and say, thus saith the Lord today, because we have the word that says, thus saith the Lord. They didn't have Genesis through Revelation like we do. We're so blessed, we have it in black and white. We don't have to wonder, is that prophet, you know, uh, been, you know, drinking his bathwater or is he anointed of God? We don't have to worry about that because we have the holy word of God. And everything that we need to know is right here in the scriptures. And I love that. It's very, very clear for us. Um, and so th that's kind of the equivalent though. So in, in the same way, you and I can ask ourselves, do we wanna hear what the word of God says or would we rather hear falsities, lies, things that we want to hear rather than things that we actually need to hear? That's the problem with the prophets of Jeremiah's day. There's actually an illustration of this. Would you turn with me? Keep your finger here in Jeremiah and go with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 18. Pardon me, ch chapter 17. No, chapter 18. We'll, we'll figure out where we are here in a second. Yeah, Second Chronicles chapter 17. Now, interesting. Nope, Second Chronicles chapter 18. Um, <laughs> the schizophrenic pastor. Um, so Second Chronicles chapter 18, this is a great story here where we have this, 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 uh, these two kings. It's sort of a story of two kings. The first king is Jehoshaphat, funny little name or big name. 
uh, Jehoshaphat, and the other king is Ahab, evil, wicked king of the north, Israel's king, um, and Jehoshaphat was Judah's king. And they were normally pretty much enemies, but these two guys come together because they have a common enemy called Syria, who's gonna come and you know, wipe them out. So Ahab and Jehoshaphat get together and they, they kind of say, well, should we go fight together, the Syrians? Now this is where the story gets really kind of interesting. It's, it's 2 Chronicles chapter 18, verse four. It says, and Jehoshaphat said unto the king of Israel, that's Ahab, inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord today. Therefore, the king of Israel, Ahab, who is, by the way, evil and wicked, he didn't care what God said. Ahab never carried what God said, never cared at all. But Jehoshaphat's a godly king who wants to know what God thinks. So he says, hey, before we do this, let's ask of the Lord. And so Ahab's like, okay, whatever. And so that's what happens. Verse five, therefore, the king of Israel gathered together of the prophets 400 men and said unto them, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall I forbear? And they, the 400 prophets said, go, go up for God will deliver it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not here a prophet of the Lord besides that we may inquire of him? What's going on here? By the way, this, this story kind of cracks me up. So Jehoshaphat says, we need to seek the Lord. Ahab's like, yeah, whatever, okay, bring in all of our prophets. And so Ahab's prophets, 400 of them come in and say, go to Ramoth Gilead. You're gonna have a great victory, O great king. Knock yourself out. But Jehoshaphat gets a sense that, I don't think we've heard from the Lord yet. Uh, is there anybody else that we can uh, you know, ask this question of? Now, now, this is where it gets funny. Ahab responds to that by saying this. Um, verse seven, and the king of Israel, Ahab said to Joseph, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. For he never prophesies good to me, but always evil. The same as Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Don't be so hard on him, come on. And so, so verse eight, the king of Israel calls for one of his officers and says, fetch quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. So meanwhile, while they're fetching Micaiah, this priest, or the, probably the prophet that, that Ahab hates because he always tells them the truth, um, the, the 400 prophets realize they're being challenged by a single prophet, so they wanna beef up their message. So while they're waiting for Micaiah, verse nine, it says, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, sat either of them on his throne, clothed in their robes, the kings, you know, and they sat in the void place, entering into the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets prophesied before them. And Zedekiah, not the king, but a different Zedekiah, Zedekiah, the son of Kanaanah, had made him horns of iron and said, thus saith the Lord, with these thou shalt put, push Syria until they be consumed. And all the prophets prophesied so saying, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. So man, these 400 prophets take another stab at convincing the two kings, you're good to go. And even one very dramatic guy makes these horns and starts acting like a bull. <laughs> like I'm a bull, that's how you're gonna push these. And like dr drama, like, like this is thespian material, you know, like where they're gonna, they're gonna you know, over-dramatize. You're gonna win, this is awesome. They're really pounding their point home. Well, finally, the person who's seeking Micaiah finds him and it says there in verse 12, the messenger that went to call Micaiah spake to Micaiah saying, behold the words of the prophets declare good to the king. With one assent, 
Let your word, therefore, I pray thee, be like one of theirs and speak thou good. In other words, don't be saying anything negative. Be positive. Tell them, tell the king what he wants to hear, you stupid prophet. That's kind of what he's saying. But Micaiah says in verse 13, as the Lord liveth, even what my God saith, that will I speak. Ooh, bold. Guy's gonna speak the true word. Verse 14, and when he was come to the king, the king said to Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall I forbear? And Micaiah said, go ye up and prosper and they shall be delivered into your hand. Brett, you're reading sarcasm in there. Well, it's there and I'll show you why in a second. But, but, but he's basically word for word saying with these goofy 400 prophets and the guy with the iron horns acting like a bull, he's basically says, yeah, what they said, do that. But the king knows he's being facetious, sarcastic. And so he says in verse 15, and the king, that's Ahab, the wicked king, said unto him, how many times shall I adjure thee that thou say nothing but the truth to me in the name of the Lord? In other words, I know you're not telling me the truth, so tell me the truth. And now you can almost hear a pin drop in the throne where these two kings are sitting. The 400, 400 prophets are being still now. And, and this one lonely little pre, uh, prophet, I should say, is about to say, okay, you wanna know what the Lord's saying? Here it is, verse 16. Then he said, I did see all Israel scattered upon the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let them return therefore every man to his house in peace. In other words, don't go to war, go home, because if you do this, Israel's gonna be without a shepherd. In other words, Ahab, you're gonna be killed. There will be no king in Israel. Verse 17, and the king of Israel said to Joseph, did I not tell thee that he would not prophesy good unto me, but evil? I told you, this prophet, he never says anything nice. And didn't mom tell you, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Like, no, this, this, this prophet is speaking the truth, but man, this king's like, I don't wanna hear him. He always speaks negatively. So what happens here? Well, we don't have time to read the whole story, but let me tell you kind of the, the Reader's Digest version. So basically, Jehoshaphat is convinced by Ahab, the wicked king, let's just go to battle anyway. That one against 400, go with the 400 prophets. They said, we're gonna have victory. And, and not only that, Ahab uh, speaks to Jehoshaphat. And I believe Jehoshaphat was not the sharpest knife in the drawer, if you know what I mean. Because Ahab says, listen, Joseph, I got a plan. Why don't you dress up in my royal garments and my crown and you look like me. And Joseph says, okay, what are you gonna do? Oh, I'll just run like a normal soldier. I'll just be one of the many soldiers in the crowd. Um, and Joseph says, okay, whatever. Is that a good idea? Going into battle with a bullseye on your chest, you know? 10, 20, 30, 40, like, like I mean, seriously, um, that's just dumb. So Jehoshaphat rides into battle wearing the king's crown and wearing his, the, the Ahab's you know, robes and the enemy, the Syrians come. And they say, there's King Ahab. And they circle around him and they get ready to kill them. Kill, kill what they think is Ahab. Let's read. There's just a couple more verses in the story. In fact, it says, uh, where is it? Verse 31. And it came to pass when the captains and chariots saw Jehoshaphat that they said, it's the king of Israel. Therefore they compassed about him to fight. But Jehoshaphat cried out and the Lord helped him. And God moved them to depart from him. For it came to pass <clears throat> that when the captains of the chariots perceived that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back again from pursuing him. Now, 
So the Lord saves Jehoshaphat. Now, don't you love that the Lord saves the not so sharp knife in the drawer? The Lord saved me too a few times from things and I'm so thankful for that. But what happened to wicked King Ahab? Check this out, he thinks he's pulled it off. Jehoshaphat's looking like him. He's just blending in as one of the soldiers. When verse 33, a certain man drew a bow at a venture and smote the king of Israel between the joints of his harness. Therefore he said to his chariot man, turn thine hand that thou mayest carry me out of those for I am wounded. So apparently Ahab got the point here. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. That was uncalled for. <clears throat> he got the point. What happened? Well, this, the, the King James kind of, it says, at a venture, what does that mean? Some soldier from the Syrian army just takes his bow and arrow. He like, he doesn't even aim. Like he just kind of at a venture, draws the bow, lets one rip. And it flies through the air, air, air and it finds its way when it says between the harness. The idea is he has this you know, breastplate and the armor, but the, the arrow finds its way between the chinks in his armor and it goes into his body and it kills him. And if you read the last of the story, the charioteer drives him home and the blood's leaking out of the chariot and dogs come and lick up all the blood. It's a horrible story. I won't even tell you what happened to his wife. But you say, Brett, what's, what's that story all about? Well, as it turns out, this is a great example of, of the world today. And that is, you know, the 400 prophets saying, go and do it, but they were all wrong. There was only one guy who was lonely standing there saying, if you go, the king of Israel's gonna die. It'd be better for you guys to go home in peace than to go to war against Ramoth Gilead. Now, the mistake that they made is they believed, there were three things, and there's three things I think we should watch out for. When it comes to us hearing from the Lord and hearing from his word, remember the prophets in the Old Testament represent you and I having the word of God telling us what to do, where to go. But the problem is, number one, they believed the drama over the truth. Beware of drama. Just because something's emotional or exciting or whatever, watch out for drama because I think there's people that'll listen to pastors that are dramatic, but not necessarily biblical. I think we need boring pastors again. You know, where, where they're just speaking doctrinal truth. I saw John Cooper, who's uh, one of the musicians and singers for Skillet. He came out with a post, I think yesterday or day before yesterday that I thought, man, he's right. Pastors need to be uncool again. Um, I know I'm the exception. Uh, um, no, just, just kidding. No, no, no. But the idea is it's not about cool and being dramatic. And, you know, I feel like people are drawn to the drama, even though it may or may not. Remember the drama of the guy with the horn saying, you're gonna have victory, I like this bull. Just because it's emotional or exciting or dramatic doesn't make it true. Number two, watch out for the, ma the majority. Just because there were 400 prophets saying go and one prophet saying no, it doesn't make the one prophet wrong. And the problem is I, I worry about the church, the condition of the church, people who should be listening to the Lord, hearing from the Lord, rather than the, the, the lonely you know, person saying, let's go with the Bible, let's go with what the Bible says, even though the church says, no, we're gonna go with the majority. Majority rules. The church has become somewhat of a democracy. Let's vote. What do you mean vote? Did you know? that the Presbyterian USA Church votes on stuff like this. The Presbyterian Church USA, I'm not just trying to be mean calling this out, but this is, I wanna give you an example of what I'm talking about. Um, the Bible teaches the doctrine of the Trinity, where we know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
But the Presbyterian Church USA, uh, a few years back, they came out with this kind of thing where they, they felt like it wasn't gender sensitive to call God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, one reason they said the language is limited to Father, Son, and it's been used to support the idea that God is a male, which he is, <laughs> and that men are superior to women, which they're not. But the Presbyterian Church said, we're gonna change this Father, Son, Holy Spirit thing because it's, it's, it's too gender insensitive. So they had this big hearing and committee that started you know, negotiating, what should we call the Trinity? Now, the good news is they decided not to completely change it and they voted to say, well, let's, if you wanna still call it Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you can, but we're also gonna give you condoned other versions of what we can call it. And so the Presbyterian USA Church, they said, here are the options. If you're a pastor in the Presbyterian Church, here are the things you can call the Holy Trinity. If you want, you can call it the mother, child, and womb. That's just stupid. That's not what the Bible says. It's not mother, child, womb. It's father, son, Holy Spirit. That's just saying, we disagree with you, God. Um, another one, they said, lover, beloved, love. <laughs> also dumb. Creator, saver, sanctifier. Now, you, now we're getting to where there's, there's a true declarations of what the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but they're still trying to deny what God calls himself. Rock, redeemer, friend, king of glory, prince of peace, spirit of love. But they, 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 they say these are the now accepted substitutions for Father, Son, Holy Spirit, because we don't wanna offend. I'm just saying, when a church starts voting democracy about things like this, We've lost our way, it's not, it's not up for vote. We're not a democracy when it comes to the word of God, we're a theocracy. By the way, I told you that all forms of human government will fail because of sin. Socialism, communism, you know, capitalism, democracy, we're, it's all gonna fail because of sin. But I do look forward to the day where we have a dictator, but the difference is a dictator is sinful. We're gonna have a theocracy when Jesus comes and rules and reigns on this earth. And the difference, some will say, well, what, is, what right does Jesus have to rule and reign on the earth? The difference is he's the only one who has no sin. That's why the millennial kingdom is gonna be glorious. And everyone's gonna love the millennial kingdom that's living during that time when Christ rules. It's the only form of government that's actually gonna work because we're not gonna include the problem of sin. But this idea of the church, you know, I saw it happen. You know, do you remember, some of us are old enough to remember when the church used to believe what the Bible said concerning sin, you know, and we called sin, sin, for the most part. But I remember, what was the big sin that's changed the whole direction? And people say, well, Brett, you always talk about this. Well, this is the one where people, the church voted on and said, you know what, homosexuality is not sin. You know, it was back actually in 2006, I remember, when the um, Episcopal Church actually said uh, uh, homosexuality is not sin. And it came from the US Episcopal Church Bishop, Catherine Jefferts Shorey. When she was on CNN, this was big shock to the church, you know, the Episcopal Church or the Anglican Church. Um, when she was on CNN, she said, they asked, well, is homosexuality sin? And she said, I don't believe so. She said, some people come into this world with affections ordered toward other people of the same gender. And some people come into this world with affections directed to the people of, the same, of, of other gender. She said, it's just the way it is. She was not even looking at the word of God. Uh, as it turns out, Jeffrey Shorey was raised a Roman Catholic and graduated in marine biology with a doctorate specialization in squids and oysters. 
I didn't say anything. I just, you guys are laughing. I don't know why. But she also uh, supported the consecration, do you guys remember, of Jean Robinson of New Hampshire, the first openly gay bishop in more than 450 years of Anglican history. He later got into legal trouble because of his sexual um, misaction uh, or whatever you wanna call it. Um, but the point is, that's, I remember when that was opened up and it was a vote of the church saying, do we accept gay? You know, uh, homosexuality is a non-sin, even though the Bible calls it sin. So you don't go with the majority. The majority will let you down. You have to stick with the scripture. Now, um, that's why we don't vote on stuff here. We look to the scriptures. And I hope, I hope that you don't just take my word for it. Um, one of the things I like to encourage all of you, whether you're listening to me or your favorite podcast or a pastor from another you know, church or podcast, or always measure what we're all saying. Acts 17, 11 says that the, be like the Bereans where you search the scriptures daily to see if what anyone is saying or what Pastor Brad is saying or what, what that pastor say, make sure you check and see if, the, if it's what the scriptures actually teach. And that's on you. That's on the congregation. We're supposed to make sure that what is being taught is from the Bible. Nobody, you know, in the Episcopal church challenged this doctor, you know, Jefford Shorey uh, of her horrible interpretation of doctrine. So it became normalized. And then you and I, we've watched church after church, pastor after pastor, pastor, women's minister and women's movement after women's movement start to embrace homosexuality as normalized and it's not a sin. Even to where maybe you know, if you're coming from the Catholic tradition, it was a shock because the Catholics were one of the last to hold out of the big giant denominations that they were saying homosexuality is still a sin. But the Pope came out a couple weeks ago and said he supports civil union, which is basically supporting homosexuality. And, and the problem is, depending on whether you're a Vatican II Catholic or different, you know, there's different kinds of Catholics, but, but there are some that would say the problem with the Pope is he's infallible. What the Pope says is equal to what the Bible says. That's one of the problems, by the way, with the Catholic Church, I'm gonna say it because popes are not infallible. In fact, I hope you know that. Just look at Catholic history. If, and, and we can find evil in all church history, Protestant or Catholic, but some of the popes were some of the most wicked dudes that ever lived on the planet. So they're not infallible. So this pope today is saying, I support civil union. And the Catholic church is, is in a tizzy now because a lot of the Catholic church is saying, no. Um, at least they're trying to say, the Bible doesn't teach that, but the pope's saying, yes, it does. We're supposed to love each other and all this stuff. And the problem is, it's the majority rule. That's not the way we roll as Christians. The Bible rules. It doesn't matter what the majority says. We learn from this little story, you know, in 2 Chronicles 18, don't go with drama, don't go with the majority, and finally, don't go with flattery. Oh, go up, the Lord will give you, great king, victory. And it's like, because of you, you're the greatest. You have, you're the exception to the rule. And people will deceive you with flattery just because they like you and they think you're wonderful. But that's how the, the king ends up dead. So we've, we see, first of all, here in back to Jeremiah, we see, first of all, the prophets, those that were supposed to give the word of the Lord, they were lying to the king. They were lying to the people. Today, be careful, be cautious, because I believe there are people who in the name of speaking the word of the Lord are, are deceiving many. And the church needs to be quick to check the scriptures and say, is that true? 
And just because there's, there's drama and emotion and hype, and just because the majority loves them, and just because of flattery, don't be sucked in to a wrong worldview because of the wrong teaching, the wrong word. That's what the first thing is, the prophets. Number two on our list here of people that Jeremiah calls out is the priest. He says the priest, the priests bear rule by their own means. Um, it goes back to what the, you know, like the NIV translation, it says the priests rule by their own authority. Basically the priests were the ones in the Old Testament that would intercede on behalf of the people and they'd, they'd sacrifice a lamb on the altar for the sins of the nation. But there came a time where instead of representing the Lord and, the, and representing the people to the Lord, the priests started doing it for their own monetary gain, for their own political power. By the time Jesus came on the scene, we don't even recognize the priesthood from the Old Testament. Remember Caiaphas, the high priest there in Jerusalem? He was totally whacked. He was a political, you know, power-hungry, wealthy dude that had nothing to do with real Judaism. By that time, it was just a political office. The priests bear rule by their own means. They're not depending on the Lord. They're not doing what the Lord would have them to do. The priests were the official ministers. They were also kind of the worship leaders in the nation of Israel and would represent the people before God. And, and then they would do all the rituals of the feasts, the festivals, and the sacrificial system. Um, but, but the problem is, um, the priests started doing stuff in their own ways, with their own traditions. And it got really whacked in Israel, really, really out of whack. What do you mean, Brett, out of whack? Let me give you an example. Um, I gave you a, kind of the funny little story of, you know, Second Chronicles 18. Go with me just for a minute to Judges chapter 17. Judges 17. Now the Judges even goes back further in history. And they were already, the priests were already kind of doing stuff weird and making stuff up as they go. Um, this is a long story. I'm gonna try to give you the short version of it. So this guy, a young man named Micah. The other story was Micaiah, but this is Micah. And Micah was a young guy. He ripped off his mom. He stole from his mother's you know, cookie jar 1,100 pieces of silver. A lot of money. And the mother said, oh no, somebody robbed me. And she got all freaked out. And finally the son said, okay, mom, I stole your money. And she said, blessed art thou, oh my son. Uh, instead of giving him a spanking, she said, you're a blessed son. Thank you, son, for telling me. Here's some money. Go buy yourself some gods. And so Micah says, thanks, mom. And he runs off and he buys some gods. Um, th does that seem like a problem if you're a Jew and you're doing any of those things? Uh, well, that just shows you the situation. Well, that's where we pick it up in Judges um, chapter 17, verse five. This guy, Micah, got money from his mom to buy gods, it says, verse five, the man Micah had made a house of gods and he made an ephod and teraphim and consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. Now question, is any of this the way you're supposed to do it? If you're a Bible person and you read about the Jews and what the priests were supposed to, this is all wrong. The only thing he's got right is there's an ephod involved. What's an ephod? Well, the ephod was a garment that the high priest would wear. It was a linen garment and it was really only for priests. But this guy said, I'm a Jew and I got, I got my little temple and it's full of a bunch of gods. It's only supposed to be one God, Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he's got many gods and he says, now I need a priest. Who should I find? Somebody with a pulse. Oh, hey son, come over here. And he puts this ephod on his son and says, you're my priest now. Do you see the kind of the craziness of this? He's just making up his religion as he goes. 
I think I like to have my son as my priest. And here's an ephod to sort of make it look legit. So he's got his ephod, he's got his priest, he's got his gods. What more could a guy want? Well, it says in verse six, in those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Boy, that's a dangerous place for a nation. People doing whatever they think is right. Majority just going whatever they wanna go. Well, this guy's made up his religion. Well, long story short, a visitor comes, a man from Bethlehem, Judah, who is a Levite. And the guy's like, hey, you're a Levite. Micah says to him, you're a Levite. Hey, son, give it over. Takes off the ephod and says, I wanna hire you to be my priest because you're a Levite. And the priests are supposed to be Levites according to the Bible. And so he puts the ephod on this guy, pays him a yearly salary to be his new Levite priest. He's that much closer to being the right, but he's still completely wrong. My point is the priest here is a Levite, hired gun by this wacko dude named Micah, and he's just making up his religion as he goes. And, and that's really what, what Jeremiah is calling out here in Jeremiah chapter five. Not only were the prophets lying, but the priests were just kind of doing stuff for their own gain, for their own purpose. And they weren't following the biblical way of worship or God's way of, 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 of people coming to worship him in, in the context of the Jews. And in the same way, as we look in the mirror of the word today, we not only see people lying to us uh, that are in the guise of you know, Bible teaching or, or religious leadership, but we also see people making stuff up as they go. And, and really, uh, that's the problem. One of the things you should always ask yourself when you go to a church or a building or a, a, a denomination or whatever, ask yourself, why are they doing what they're doing? Because it's, it's worth asking. There's, in my you know, reading of scripture, the Bible gives us very clear descriptions of what the church is supposed to do, what we're supposed to be, and also things we're not supposed to do. Um, and yet we're really blind to those things and we sort of make stuff up as we go. Speaking of the Catholic church and we wonder why have they suddenly embraced homosexuality? Um, there's a lot of questions we should have. Where did the pointy hats come from? Why do they wear robes? Why do they you know, pray to the saints? Why, why, why is it that there's a mediator between God and man that's more that, like the priest or is it Mary or the, the, the saints? Um, even though the Bible says, like for example, Jesus said, call no one your father. That is, that, you know, in a religious setting. Jesus said that, call no one your father. Why do we call people our father? When you go to certain ministries or churches, hello father. Even though Jesus said, don't call people that. Why do we have other mediators between God and man when the Bible says, Paul told Timothy, there's only one mediator between God and man. See, some people would come to Athey Creek and say, well, this isn't even really a church. Why not? Because Brett's not wearing a pointy hat and a robe. This isn't a real church. There's no cross. Where's the cross? I love crosses. We don't have one. I talk about this once in a while because we get a lot of grief for it. I would go to Ethan Creek if you were a real church. Well, what makes us a real church? A cross. Well, the Bible, and I'm not, I'm not gonna, you know, I love crosses. If you're wearing a necklace, it's a cross. Wonderful, it's great. But I, I, I stubbornly say, you know what? The Bible doesn't say thou shalt have a cross in your church. It does say thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. But if I'm gonna err on one side, I think maybe I'm gonna err on the side of the Bible and say, maybe making images that when you put them up on a wall, people go, oh, wow, we worship 
uh, that's a dangerous thing. That, that's not even really biblical to do that if you're worshiping the, the object. And I'm not saying churches are doing that. Uh, some are, some are. When I went to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, man, people are worshiping artwork and statues like it's crazy. Thou shalt not make any graven image. Meanwhile, ching, 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 they made an image of Peter. And like I said a few weeks ago, they kissed his toe clean off. They're worshiping Peter's toe. And they, millions of people every day, and they've kissed that granite so long, his big toe is gone. So they got out some JB Weld and they stuck a new toe. I'm not kidding. Stuck a new toe on Peter at the Basilica. I saw it. And even that toe's starting to get worn down now. Second toe. Is that what, would Peter approve of that? Do you remember when they took Peter and Paul and those kinds of guys and people would bow down and worship them? Do you remember what Peter and Paul did and those guys? They would do stuff like they'd rip their clothes and say, do not worship me, but worship God alone. Where did our traditions come from? See, that's the problem. A lot of religious systems, we kind of do stuff, we kind of make it up as we go. Like Micah, oh, let's get a priest and an ephod and let's make it look really religious and it'll be awesome. But we really should say, let's search the scriptures and see what the Bible actually says. What is the church supposed to look like and be? And I'm not saying Athey Creek's the perfect church, definitely not. It's full of sinners, that's our biggest flaw. But I am saying our goal here at Athey Creek is to say, let's be as biblically sound as the what we're doing and why we do what we do, um, to be as like the early church, long before the church got kind of corrupted by man's traditions, to be as much like what the Bible says the church should be as possible. And that's our goal. So here, Jeremiah indicts the people. Man, this is the way you want it. You want lying prophets. You want priests doing it their own way. Point number three, we're almost done. The people, and my people love to have it so. Why do the people, this is a curious question when you think about it. Why do the people go, oh, we love lying prophets and we love priests that are just like really whacked. We love this. I'll tell you why, because it gives them license to do stuff the way they wanna do themselves. Nobody wants to hear the word of God. It's almost like that sense when we read the story in Second Chronicles, how Ahab really didn't wanna know the truth. He'd rather hear, you know, those, the flattery of the 400 prophets. Yeah, you're awesome, go, go to battle. He'd rather hear that than actually hear the truth. That's part of human nature. We don't wanna hear the truth. We'd rather live with ignorant bliss and not hear about things that are true. And, and that's the problem. Jeremiah says the people, they love to have it so. Big goof, big mistake. You and I should be hungering for truth. We're living in days, I think, where truth is a scarce commodity. To hear something that's true, man, don't watch Fox News, don't watch CNN, don't watch MSNBC, uh, don't, don't listen to that blog, don't listen to the other. Like, finding truth is really hard today. But I love that the Bible is where we can find it. Let's not be these people saying, yeah, we, we, don't, want, we don't want that, that's a little too true. But the Bible is where we find absolute truth. So you got the problem of the, the prophets, the priests, the people, and then the final question is you. Um, where are you at? Remember 2 Timothy chapter two, uh, four, verses two through four? There it says, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season. In other words, no matter what time it is, good times, bad times, good season, bad season, be ready um, to reprove, rebuke, resort with all long suffering and doctrine. For, here's what you know, Paul tells Timothy is coming. 
For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they, they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. The last days would be marked with this notion that I'm talking about, people not wanting to hear the truth. They have itching ears. You know, when you go up to your faithful dog and you scratch that certain place under their front leg, and as you scratch, what does their real leg do? Have you ever seen that? It's great. That's what the church is. Pastors are coming up and the church is like, okay. Oh, that's great, we like that. <laughs> itching ears, and we just love it. We love hearing stuff that's emotional and flattery and uh, you know, drama, and we get into stuff, but is it true? Is, is what we're getting into and thinking about, is it actually true? Have we been turned to fables? And that's what I'm concerned about. So that really is the question, what are you personally gonna do when it comes to this? Because that's the way Jeremiah ends this chapter. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Um, it says, what will you do in the end thereof? By the way, um, this is the, the problem. This is why I say that not just to be divisive or mean or anything like that. That's not, not why I do what I do. But when I share this kind of stuff, the, it's the concern what Proverbs fourteen twelve says. It says, there's a way which seems right to man, but the end is the way of death. And I fear that the church has lost so much of, of the truth and we've kind of got into our own fables so much that I wonder if there's places you can go to church and not even really know what the gospel is. Never really hear that you're a sinner who needs to be saved of your sins. You, you need to repent of your sins and, and accept Jesus Christ as your savior. And the problem is, if, 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 if the church was a democracy, I think there's a lot of people saying, Brett, let's vote. And we really don't like you know, churches that, that talk about hell. That's so negative, don't be such a downer. Sometimes I hear pastors say this, um, and I understand what they mean, but I'm concerned when they say, you know, we need to tell people what we're for and not what we're against. Have you heard that? Christians should tell people what we're for and what we're not. I get what they're saying. Here's the problem. The Bible spends a lot of time telling us what God is against, tons of time. In fact, you might even say that there's more in the Bible about what God hates and what he it tells us that is sin and wrong. And, and for us to just, totally disassociate with the negatives, we're not really giving the truth. And you see, the, the truth is so important to know. You're a sinner who's headed for destruction and hell. We've talked about that now for weeks. It's Isaiah, Jeremiah, it's where we're at in the Bible. But I love that the good news is right at the forefront. The good news of the gospel that, that Jesus came to die on the cross for sinners like you. And, and unless you know that we're headed for destruction and death and hell, the gospel means nothing. Why would I wanna be saved if I didn't know that it does something? You know, if, if you tell a person you should become a Christian, why? Because you can be part of the church. Eh, don't wanna be that, that's a lose. Well, you could become a Christian because the Lord will make you wealthy and you'll live victorious living. Eh, may or may not happen. A lot of people in the Bible lived not victorious. Jesus, Paul, Peter, all the disciples lived not victoriously, but they were living rightly ultimately bringing them to victory in heaven. You see, it's a funny thing. We get the wrong message. The reason you need to become a Christian is because you're headed for death and hell. 
And the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. When you accept and believe and confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Jesus, that he raised up from the dead, that when he died on the cross for your sins, he did what he said he would do, that you might have eternal life. That's the reason we preach the gospel. That's why we want you to become a Christian, not to add to our church numbers or you know, put a mark on the church things. And when we've got another Christian, nope, to save a sinner from the punishment that we all deserve. So the question then is, what are you gonna do? And my hope is number one, if you're a Christian, that you follow the word. Let the word be your guide. And be careful when you're blogging it up or you're listening to podcasts or, or you're listening to Bible teachers and stuff. Be careful, because there's a lot, like Jeremiah's day, prophets and priests that will lie and do stuff for their own reasons. And don't be the people that are going, oh, that's great, we love it that way. Instead, we need to say, nope. God forbid, we're gonna follow the scriptures and we're gonna search the scriptures like the Bereans and see if what's being said is true or false. Not just glibly, naively, you know, eat it all up and say, that's wonderful because it's emotion, it's drama, it's flattery. Don't, don't do it, don't do it, don't be sucked in. But also, if you're not a Christian, today's a good day to accept Christ and be saved and forgiven. Would you bow your heads, please, as we wrap this up? I'm gonna ask the band to come up and they're gonna, lead us in one final song as we close the service. But I also would like to just invite you to accept Jesus. If you're out watching online with us today uh, and you know that you're not a Christian, maybe you've never accepted Christ. If you think you're a Christian because you've opened your Bible, no. If you think you're a Christian because you're sitting in a church, nope, that's not what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is a, a decision that God puts before you. You can choose life or death eternal life or eternal death. And it's up to you, he doesn't force you, he's a perfect gentleman. He invites you to accept him. And Romans 10, verse nine and 10 says this, it says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus Christ and God raised him from the dead, it says you will be saved. That means your sins are forgiven, past, present, future, he died once for all sin. Doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you're gonna have your life perfectly dialed in or anything like that. It means that your sins will be forgiven. And when you stand before God someday, he will look to you and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And you might say, me, are you talking to me? The Lord said, yep, because when you confessed your faith and you believed with your mouth and your heart and you believed you were saved when you let me take the penalty for you. Substitution, that's what it is. He substituted himself in a place where you deserve the penalty. If that's you, just do this right now. Just say, Lord, I repent of my sins. You can just confess this. Just say, Lord, I repent. Repenting means acknowledging your sin before God. And then you turn around and go the other direction and say, Lord, I wanna walk with you. I wanna, I wanna be saved. So you accept Jesus. Say, Lord, I, I accept you into my heart. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and that you rose up from the grave. And if you confess that right now and believe it in your heart, the Bible says, Romans 10, verse nine and 10, you will be saved. Lord, how we pray that you would just penetrate even the hardest of hearts today. We have so many views of what Christianity looks like or what it sounds like or what religion is and so much that fogs up the situation and stuff that's not even really true, but people think is the ultimate epitome of religion, but it's just so misguided in so many ways. Help my brothers and sisters who are listening or watching today um, overcome those preconceived ideas. May they know their need for salvation and 
that faith. For we're saved by grace through faith, not of our works. So bless these, your people. Lord, I pray that we'd be wise in these days. Lord, where the church is not a democracy, we wanna follow you. And as we see our democracy fail our nation, Lord, even this week, we're reminded of how we really need you to direct our path. We need you to guide our lives. Lord, give us an eternal perspective, I pray. Build up your church, strengthen your church, Lord. May we be given to your word. In Jesus' name we pray.